Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. This is your host, Lee Pierce, she, hers, from the University State University of New York at Geneseo. And I am so excited today to be interviewing Kendall Phillips on his latest book, A Place of Darkness, The Rhetoric of Horror in Early American Cinema, which was published by the University of Texas Press in 2018. Um, Kendall, do you prefer Kendall or Dr. Phillips for the interview? Kendall is absolutely fine, and my pronouns are he, him, so. Oh, excellent. I love a good pronoun. All right. Well, Kendall, it's great to have you. I'm so stoked to talk about the book. Do you want to start by just telling listeners a little bit about yourself or the book or where you come from, since obviously we're talking to a large mass of strangers today? Absolutely. Hi, large mass of strangers. Always good to talk to you. Uh, My name is Kendall. I was born and raised in Texas. Uh, I have taught uh, in the department of Communication and Rhetorical Studies at Syracuse University, also in upstate New York, uh, for just about 20 years. Uh, and I have spent a good portion of that studying horror films and popular culture and those sorts of issues. Awesome. And so you raised the, the word rhetoric, which I think is awesome. I am also a rhetorician. Not, not a lot of rhetoric books on the New Books Network right now. So could you maybe give your quick and dirty version of what it means to be a rhetorical scholar for people that maybe haven't heard that in a communication context? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I always go back as horribly traditional as it is to Aristotle and the idea of rhetoric as a kind of art or faculty of finding in any given situation the available means of persuasion, which means as a, as a critic or I guess a scholar, I try to look at texts that circulate in public, for me, particularly pop culture texts, and mm-hmm. ask, how do they become meaningful? How do they motivate people to be excited or persuaded or upset or whatever it might be? So for me, it's very much the play between text and context and the sort of conditions in which people kind of come to decide what something means. Yeah. And I think what's really cool about this book is, and I I think you'll recognize this, but one of the problems that we run into as rhetoricians is that so much of the way that that is perceived in popular imaginary is as an explicit kind of behavior, right? That I'm trying to persuade you and you are consciously considering being persuaded. Yeah, I think- But in the- Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, but in the book, that's not what's happening, right? These films and, and and the critiques of the films are circulating in such very- nuanced ways that the rhetoric is so far behind the scenes that we don't think of it the way we might say like when you know somebody stands up and tries to sell you a car for example yeah i think for me very early on all the way back when i was doing my phd at penn state i I realized that i was much less interested in kind of explicit persuasion like presidential speeches not that there's anything wrong with that that just was not my interest but i was much more interested in the kinds of things that circulate that people Uh, respond to, like, find political meanings in when they were not explicitly meant to be political. So, so like, when a film is controversial and people get upset, odds are people weren't trying to make it controversial. It's just somehow that's the meaning that gets circulated. And so I'm much more interested in those kind of less explicit, more subtle circulation of politics for me than than when someone stands up and say, I am going to give a political speech now. Right. Yeah. And I think that's good. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I sort of want on the podcast because it, it just isn't doesn't get circulated as much as some of the other specialties in this area do. Yeah. And I think I think the other side of it, if I could say, you know, I, I circulate as, as many of us do kind of move between different worlds. Sure. Uh, and, and rhetoric is sort of one of the worlds I live in. And then the other is uh, sort of in film or cinema studies, screen mm. studies, as people call it now. And and I do think there's also a kind of value that rhetorical scholars, and I'm certainly not the only one, Casey Ryan Kelly and, and Claire Sisko Keenan yeah. and other people doing kind of rhetoric of film stuff. But I think that what we bring to those conversations is a kind of bigger interest in cultural reception and circulation, whereas often film studies people are maybe a little more focused on the technical or aesthetic aspects of, of film, which is great. But I feel like we add a kind of different dimension of thinking a little more about, you know, reception and circulation and this kind of meaning process. Yeah, I agree. Did you read Eugenie Brinkema's The Forms of the Affects? Yes. No, I think I think the whole move into affect has been a great bridge between, you know, kind of more literary film, textual, et cetera, studies and rhetoric, because that's one of the those networks of circulation become really crucial. Well, and the whole time I was reading Brinkema's ta- the book, and it's just, I, I keep trying to get her on the show, but she's like on sabbatical in Norway or something. 
that book is so awesome. But it, but I do wish I, I got from your book what I always sort of wished I also got if she were going to write a second version of that book, which okay. is what about the film reviewers and what about and she does a little bit of that, but not nearly to the degree where she's sort of looking at the bigger so what if this particular film circulates in this way, what do we get as like a like a film identity or a cultural or a context or an audience, right? No, absolutely. I think one of the explicit things I kind of wanted to do and kind of just the way the project unfolded had to do was to some extent kind of decenter the text. Sure. And 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 so that the context became the text. And that kind of reversal mm. for me was productive in sort of thinking about all those ways in which this text gets situated is actually also a really crucial part of the the sort of rhetorical process. Oh, I love, yeah, text, the slip between text and context, but you handle it beautifully. I mean, you're in, you're out. So with that said, let's get to the book. And so I, um, obviously there's like two ways we can go about a book, right? We can start big and say, what's the thesis and move into exemplars. But I actually prefer to dive right into my favorite part of the book. So if you're willing to, if you're willing to be risky. Okay. So I want to ask you about something you say on page 145 in your reading of the Phantom of the Opera, which I just... Oh, that gave me goose. That gave me goose pimples. It was so good. And you make the argument that um, that at the moment. So for the for people who haven't watched, well, actually, it's your book. So will you describe? So you call this the moment of revelation when when Christine sort of like is is going to unmask the phantom. Yeah. So this is kind of that exciting moment, maybe the most exciting moment in Phantom of the Opera. Uh, Christine has been taken by the phantom. She's down in his uh, sort of dungeon lair. Uh, he is playing the organ with his mask on, and and the filmmakers take quite a bit of care in the process by which she slowly sneaks up behind, wanting to see the face behind this mask, uh, and pulls it away. Okay, yeah. So because I don't, I can't, I can't. Pre- Although if you haven't seen Phantom of the Opera, listeners, you're really missing out. But um, just in case you haven't, and you make the argument that at that moment, and I'll quote here: the implicit contract with American audiences that the viewing ethic of incredulity would be rewarded by seeing the folly of others was, if not quite broken, at least slightly bent. The viewing pleasure of Phantom was not the revelation of folly on the part of the credulous, but rather the horror we feel at the shocking moment of revelation. So can you expand on that a bit for us? Because it's also, I think, going to take us into the big, the big move of this chapter, which is to shift from the pre to the post in terms of credulity and what, what audiences want from a film that we'll call horror, but isn't horror necessarily. Sure. Absolutely. So, so to try to be fairly brief, uh, you don't have to be brief. We're only at six minutes. You have so oh, much time. Great. I'll stretch back. I'll st- <laughs> Go right ahead. For me, I'll still try to be brief or otherwise I'll, I'll be here for weeks. But uh, <laughs> in the very, very early days of film, and this is really 1896 until about 1907 or so, you know, there are all kinds of magical fairy tales and magicians and stories about hell and all kinds of fantastic magical things. And then, particularly in American film, that was slowly pushed out. And it, in what I call the American uncanny or the, the folly of superstition, I think for folks that don't know early film, the best way to think about it is is sort of classic Scooby-Doo, uh, which is that... I wrote Scooby... I wrote Scooby-Doo in the margins of one of these pages. But seriously, I'm going to send you a text message with a screenshot. I definitely did it. That is, all, yeah. I mean, Scooby-Doo is kind of drawing on a deep, oddly enough, a very deep uh, cultural tradition in American culture, which is that what what someone thinks is a ghost is not a ghost. It always ends up being right. a mistake or a hoax or a trick. And often in films, really in the teens and twenties, the person who was gullible enough or credulous enough to believe that it's a ghost. Is, is shown to be quite foolish. And so this was a lot of the comedy of, of the, the sort of pseudo-horror films of the teens and 20s. But Phantom reverses that. As much as, as uh, you know, our, our protagonist is sort of heading up to the Phantom and, and we may well expect her to find out that she's foolish, she actually reveals something that is very horrifying. Uh, and that is, I think that was an important step towards what would happen in the 30s when that idea that the supernatural doesn't exist suddenly breaks open with Dracula and Frankenstein, and then we, we, we have the supernatural and the fantastic return with a vengeance into American film. Which is so weird because, you know, the book sort of makes this argument that in, in the early, I guess we'll call it late, so that like the 1890s, there's this, what you call it, monst- monstrative 
yeah. which is that the the ghost kind of just is there and it's sort of got these superstitious old world old world kind of feel to it and you talk about and of course the film technology there is so constraining but also enables some of these like like the ghost like waves that come from the camera reflection i mean i'm not techie so i really enjoyed some of the screenshots you provided they were very helpful oh good i'm glad but but that at one point kind of america becomes sort of what we think of it as now which is this highly rational oh you're not going to pull one over on me and we sort of forget that that in some ways we've almost come full circle because now we're it's no longer satisfying to us to be in the know right in a way it was in the say what is this like the 19 1910s 1920s well this is a little earlier than that i guess this is like 1908 or 19 when did when did the when did the phantom of the opera come out 1925 okay so oh no so we're in the 25 right which is and would you talk a little bit because i think that shift you you argue has a lot to do with sort of the the great depression and immigrant anxiety right yeah so certainly you know phantom of the opera is is part of a a kind of gradual move to increase uh, to, to offer increasingly sort of gruesome and and terrifying elements in film but even those films um Phantom, of course, in the end, Phantom is not a phantom. He's a disfigured person. He's right. perfectly normal, very Scooby-Doo-ish. Um, and those keep increasing. So in the late 20s, you get what are often called mystery thrillers. So these are like, uh, if people want to watch a, a fun, silent film, Cat and the Canary, where okay. there, there may be a ghost, there may be a monster, but in the end, we find out it's just someone trying to scare people away to steal an inheritance. So it's like, again, every Scooby-Doo mm-hmm. episode you've ever seen. So 1931 is, is the moment of rupture. And, and so when Dracula comes out, Dracula is not a guy pretending to be a vampire. He is not tricking people. There is no great reveal. He is actually a vampire. And for me, and, and, and I think you know other folks agree, a big part of that is the Great Depression. You know, from, from the 18, really from the Civil War to the Great Depression, there was an American cultural kind of contract. If you work hard and you're reasonable and progressive, and then, of course, also written in that is if you're white, straight, male, but you share the ideologies, that that the world will keep progressing. So this is the great, you know, manifest destiny. We are destined to reach out into the world. We are destined to get better. Things are going to turn into progress, and that's the American contract. And then the Great Depression comes, and all that flips, right? The capitalism has failed. The government refuses to be involved. Banks are failing. People are unemployed. You're looking around the world saying, wait a minute, what happened to all this rational progress? And in the midst of that, Dracula comes out as a kind of, to be honest, badly made, uh, low-budget film. And it Hmm. it is massive. It is huge and so big Hmm. that Universal immediately puts Frankenstein into production and other studios come on board and we get that sort of golden age of Universal monsters. But I think that spoke to people's anxiety and their sense that all that they had believed they knew about the world, they believed they understood it, they understood the way the world worked. When that failed, it opened a space for all of these other worldly kind of figures and tropes and ideas to kind of reemerge in the popular imaginary. Yeah, you um, you put it absolutely beautifully. And and in a sec, once we kind of go through the substance, I want to. I want to take a minute to just totally fangirl over the form, the, the rhetorical form of the book and the way you've structured it, like your composition, because it's just, it was such a great read. Yeah. But you make the argument on page 185 at the conclusion, after you've kind of made your argument about Dracula for the second time, because the book opens with and closes with the Dracula movement is, um, quote, moving pictures were a way of drawing audiences into the American point of view with the promise that rationality and incredulity would lead to romantic financial and cultural success. And then you say, I love this line, the horror genre emerged out of the cracks of that promise. I don't know who wrote that, but that does sound good. I'm not, I don't think that was me, but what that, no, that's definitely you. No, I'm just being self deprecating Oh, I was like, what? No, that's, I was like, Oh no. And now she discovers the whole book was plagiarized this whole time. Exactly. My Scooby-Doo moment. Yeah. And I just, it's so cool because it's hard. People want a binary answer, right? Which is, well, did horror do it or not? And you're like, well, it did. And it didn't. Right. Which I think is often the case with sort of rhetoric and culture. It's not a straight line. It's rarely a cause and effect it's such a complicated inner set of intersections between ideologies and historical moments and technology and industry and and, and cultural tropes that uh that you, you always have to keep kind of parsing those things out and, and 
you know, and I do think it was very much not even just ideological. It was actually pretty explicit that American film producers were make were were creating films to uh, uplift, as they would call it, uplift the American culture. They were quite explicit about targeting superstition as a kind of folly and, and as non-American so that to become an American you had to put away those superstitions and, and those kinds of religious beliefs and become a kind of rational progressive American. They wanted to champion the idea of hard work. They wanted to champion the idea of respecting authority. So the, the, the ideological project was was actually very explicit. This is not like subtle. This is They said that this is what they were doing. What I think is interesting to me is the way that what seems like a kind of foolish, almost silly aspect of film, ghosts and witches and curses, actually was really central to that project. And when the project started to fracture, that's what came through the cracks. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And, and obviously, the in addition to the uplift culture, which you sort of talk about pretty prominently through the middle of the book, you have this notion of the American uncanny, which I thought was a really great term. Um, and it ties in nicely to just some of the really awesome. So for the for the readers, uh, this book is essentially a genealogy, and it covers this sort of thirty year time span of, I guess what you say is like is not yet horror, but is also not not horror, right? In the sense it has what you say are called horrific elements. Yeah, I think so. So if I could just say say the the, the trick of the book, <laughs> if there if there's a, a <laughs> an opening sort of move, is that the term horror film really doesn't enter into popular usage until 1931, shortly after Dracula has come out, and, and in anticipation of Frankenstein. Now, again, the term had mm. appeared, but it, it was isolated and never picked up, and there were all kinds of other words used. Um, but horror film really comes out, and Variety says uh, in April of 1931 that Universal has cornered the horror cycle, and then that language slowly locks in, and now we have the genre and all the expectations. So, in, and I'd written about that before, and in some ways, I kind of always yeah, felt mm-hmm. I always felt guilty that I had never thought about what were all those films that came before the term horror film, because all the elements were there. And so that was sort of the, this project to go back and say, okay, if they weren't called horror films, what were they? And to be honest, I started thinking this may be a very short project, um, and it actually got right, to be a much sure. bigger project. Yeah, and and um, it, what's really fascinating about the book, I think, at sort of a meta level, is how much difference you are able to identify in thirty years. It's a tremendous period of change, and certainly change in the medium, because we go from, as you say, very still, very stagnant shots to much more uh, you know, effective camera technology. The, the the movie theater doesn't enter into things until nineteen oh five, so for the first decade ish of moving pictures, people saw them in vaudeville halls or, or county fairs. And even then, the 1905 theater was like a storefront with a, with a sheet in the back. And by the time you get to the teen, late teens and 20s, you have the movie palaces that we think of now, these gorgeous, massive, mm-hmm. thousand-seat auditoriums. Yeah. So, and of course, American culture. You know, When film comes out in the 1890s, we're just a few years, really, a couple of decades after the Civil War. And you think about how much America changed from 1896 to 1931, we went from being a small, isolated country getting over a civil war to becoming the source of the location of lots of incoming immigrants to becoming a world uh, force in the First World War and then becoming eventually kind of the global superpower after the Second World War and all the technology and everything. So it's a tremendously rich period on every front uh, and certainly in relation to moving pictures. Yeah, and I don't. I didn't mark it because at the time I wasn't thinking it was a, a main focal point. It was just again one of the many things about this book. I I just was like, ooh, star that, underline that, right? Um, but you make this argument about how the sort of like those. So you use the word incredulity to to mean like oh an audience that is kind of skeptical and like oh we're going to find out the, the truth behind this, and then credulity as sort of this like willingness to just believe that there is something else going on that we can't explain away, right? Yes, And you make this argument that sort of the credulity of the earlier films that are coming out just after the Civil War both have, have both a, a filmic technical issue, but they also tap into slash reflect this like sense of law, this deep sense of loss following the Civil War that, that, the, that the screen is sort of giving, giving vision to. 
as people are kind of very much haunted at that time. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting ele- it's an interesting dimension of American history that I think often kind of gets erased or left behind. Yeah, but mm-hmm. this the rise of American spiritualism. Um, which actually sort of started in 1848 with the Fox sisters, not far from me and not far from you, uh, out near Rochester, New York. Um, but but it was really after the Civil War that this tremendous explosion, millions of Americans were professing some belief in life after death, the ability to communicate with the dead through seances, through uh, mediums, through all kinds of Ouija boards, etc., so there's this tremendous explosion of interest across the board. And of course, a lot of that interest is feeding not just on the, the certainly off of the grief of the Civil War, but also recycling these deeper sort of other cultural traditions. So they're really the immigrants' traditions. So reaching into Eastern European, reaching into African traditions, reaching into Middle Eastern traditions, reaching into some ways to indigenous traditions in America, all creating this sort of loose complex constellations of beliefs that are that are really contrary to kind of the growing american rationalist project and so in the midst of that we start making films and of course not to belabor the point but early filmmakers were making fairly short uh, technically limited films so they couldn't really tell a really long complicated story so they really had to rely on using images that audiences would immediately identify and the image of a ghost or the image of a witch or the image of a mummy was immediately identifiable because those were already circulating in the culture. Yeah, there's just so much to unpack here. I mean, it is just – are you like really proud of – if I, if this were my book, I would just be like, man, I really know what I'm doing. <laughs> I have never felt that way in my life. But I, I will say <sighs> this, was a, this was a long project. Like I said, you know, I, I started – I had written a book that was a bit dismissive. I kind of feel guilty. I feel guilty about everything, but I feel guilty about – I was a bit dismissive of silent films, sort of saying, look, they weren't called horror films, so I'm not going to look at them. Uh, yes, I do I do remember that because I did read your first book a long, like a while ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I didn't, I didn't actually connect the fact that this is sort of the apologia for the, <laughs> the omitted of the first book, right? It, 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 it very much is. And, and, and part of it was, so at some point, you know, as I was at the time toiling away in academic administration and my mental soul was dying, uh, I thought, you know, I really got to start a, a big project. And so I thought, you know, this is, feels like an omission that I, I feel guilty about. So I spent, I'd say a good year and a half just reading the incredible literature on early cinema, silent film theories, histories, etc. just trying to educate myself so I didn't walk in like, uh, you know, uh, not acknowledging the great work done by a lot of folks already. And then I spent a good year and a half, almost two years in archives. So I was fortunate to get support yeah. to go mm-hmm. to LA and London. I was in, in New Zealand, uh, all kinds of great places, looking through, getting the incredible support of amazing, amazing archivists who were very, very patient with an ignorant person like me. Uh, so, I, so as I appreciate the kind words about the book, I will say it was very much a kind of long-term project, and it was it was really wonderful to see that finally come to something. Yeah, and the writing is so tight. I mean, this was just it, it's it's almost a hard thing to interview you on because I want to quote you back to yourself all the time, but then I'm like, well, they can just read the book for the quotes. But the writing is just fantastic, and you actually link back up with the old project because you make the argument that what this work sort of shares in common with with the previous book, um, is this notion of resonant violation? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you want to kind of chat a bit about that? Cause I, again, I think these are sort of important takeaway points. So while I love the minutia, I also know that re- that listeners tend to be more into the, the dominant themes. I'm just not a theme person. No, no, I'm, I'm completely, completely with it. So the, the idea, I think often when you look at horror films and probably all films, but horror in particular, people tend to want to read them as allegories, which is, which is, you know, in mm, some ways true. Sure. But I, and we should definitely plug Claire. By the way, Claire Cisco King's book is too old to be on the New Books Network. But washed in that washed in blood, which is about the allegory of absolutely of of the films matching up with the masculinity in the war. Yeah. So if listeners are listening, I can't interview Claire Cisco King about washed in blood because the book's too old. But you should check it out. I, th- okay, I think she has a new book coming soon. So I know, I know. I'm I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm in the trenches. No, Claire is one of my absolute intellectual heroes, and, and just a, a fabulous person, uh, a great friend. Um, but for me, I, I think I wanted to push that notion out a little bit more 
and think beyond just sort of the symbolic allegorical, it's, it's also kind of a symbolic and affective allegorical. Mm-hmm. And so the metaphor yeah. I, I actually stole from Stephen Greenblatt, the literary critic, is that sometimes texts resonate, that kind of sympathetic hum. So you don't necessarily look at Dre, oh, he represents capitalism gone wrong, uh, or immigration run amok, but somehow that monster feels right for this time period. And so the, the, that was one part of, of making a really effective horror film, or particularly the kind of horror films that redefine the genre, because it is a genre that kind of keeps redefining itself. And then the other element, though, was you have to make a monster that feels right, that feels relevant, that makes sense at some sort of deep level. But you also have to break the rules of the genre. So if you look at every major horror film that kind of redefined the, the history of the horror film, they do something in the film that really throws the audience off. Like suddenly you feel like the, the mm-hmm. contrary. And I think this goes back to the, the, the current book. Horror is very much about breaking the contract with the viewer. Yeah, and it kind of prom- that's almost the contract. If I go see, a, as I see a lot of horror films because it's occupational hazard, so many of them are just you know kind of in fairness a little bit painful, derivative, in part because they don't break the contract. They fulfill every letter of the work. I totally agree with you. That is such a good way to put it. I don't know why I yeah, never so thought many of that. that you could just watch and go. I, I can almost uh, here comes the ironic happy song used in a scary way. Here comes the jump scare. Here comes the mother figure. Here, I mean, you sort of like just paint it. But every once in a while, and this is why I think the genre has survived for, for so long and, and remained kind of relevant across the board, you get a film like uh, you know, the recent sort of uh, uh, golden child of the horror film, uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out, that takes what a horror film looks like and gives you something that really does not look like what you expect. It kind of breaks that contract, lays out its politics in a different way, and that then becomes this inspiration for a whole set of other filmmakers. Mm. Yeah. Um, did you see Cabin in the Woods? I did. Yeah, I love that film. I, I thought, yeah, and I thought it did a really good job of, can, can you have this kind of, and I'm a, I'm a high literary, I mean, I just love literature. I, I probably should have been an English professor instead of a rhetoric, but you, one of your chapters is on uh, the, the way that literary monsters come to play sort of an important role as horror is, is, is well, pre-horror is kind of moving more toward what will be horror horror and this uplift culture, but also wanting the horrific elements and how do you kind of reconcile wanting to kind of like wanting to uplift, but then also wanting to still maintain. And one of the things that, that people do is they tap into the great literary works because you sort of get the ethos of high literature. Absolutely. I mean, that that's... Very again, kind of one of those things that if you actually read the the text, it's it's pretty explicit saying you know that if you if you made Frankenstein just as a monster movie, that would have been looked down upon and been low culture. Sure. But if you say we we are adapting the great literary novel from Mary Shelley, suddenly now it gets that cover. Same was true with the uh, Family Opera, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yep, uh, lots of mm-hmm. works of Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, so it, it provided this way of saying, you know, because audiences, I think, still, and I guess it's probably part of that repression, the culture was telling you don't believe in those things, but that's part of why you want to believe in them or, or want to explore them. And so literature provided this great cover to say, well, we're not being gruesome. We're just showing what Mary Shelley talked about. Yeah, and that was my favorite part of Cabin in the Woods was them tapping into these literary devices as a means of constructing the horror narrative uh, no it's a tremendously smart film yeah and, and, it's very smart yeah it just it made me think i was thinking about when i was reading the literary horrors chapter because i remember thinking that's 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 sort of like the new the newest version of this of this move right absolutely absolutely so you brought up repression and i think that brings us to the oh gosh the like really heavy lifting of this book which is what you do cuz it's not only a genealogy of of horror films during a certain period or, or pre-horror films it's also a genealogy of the theory of the uncanny yeah yeah and you tie that up it's just like it's one of those things there's just you make so many lines right you draw a line across the the the, the chronological you draw a line across technology but you also draw a line across different ways of thinking about the uncanny so i don't even know how you want to start unpacking that but this to me was as, as a theorist one of my favorite pieces of the book so i thought maybe you could kind of talk about I don't know, you could start with Freud or Todorov and then maybe just sort of talk about the trajectory and how that, that organizes some of the book's argument. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so, so 
I move across kind of broadly, as, as you suggest, three theories of, of the uncanny, including one of the, the earliest, Ernst Jensch, who, who talks about it almost entirely as a perceptual issue. Right. The uncanny well, let's is, back up for a second. Okay, so at a, at a general, I'm just thinking for people who like don't even know, because I actually, sure. I was so interested in this. I talked about the uncanny in class and I realized this is not a word people kind of think about technically. Right. So why don't we give just a general, like, what is the uncanny kind of if you haven't really thought much about it and then maybe move through? No, no absolutely. absolutely. So I, my, what I always say to students is uh, when I go into my basement at night, mm. it is my house. I, I, I have paid for it. I can guarantee you I paid for it. I paid a lot. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> mortgage is a painful thing. Uh, it's my house. It's my basement. Everything in that basement is mine or, or my wife's. We, we have put it there. This is where we live. And yet there is a feeling, particularly at night when it's dark, that this very familiar space that I occupy is somehow unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. A okay. Kind of, yeah, that's great. Right? So anybody's gone to their attic or basement or whatever other dark places. Or the other example is, you know, if, if I wake up at night and glance across the bedroom and see a figure and it raises the hackles on my neck and I think, oh my goodness, what is that? And then I turn the light on and realize it's my coat in a chair. Mm-hmm. That is, so the, the root of uncanny is a kind of odd feeling of unfamiliarity in something that is familiar. Right. And so in literature, that's often taken up by, you know, misperceptions, by thinking you see someone who's dead there or... Uh, the, the the other great literary example is the doppelganger, right? The mm-hmm. the me that is not me, and to see me as not me um, is is unsettling beyond just being part of a plot point. The very idea of an identical me, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, is is a kind of unsettling, eerie feeling. And so, yeah, various theorists of this idea of the uncanny have tried to play that out. As I said, Yench, who is kind of one of the first in the sort of psychological tradition to to belabor the idea. Focus very much on the idea of perception. There's a kind of biological almost sensation that can be pleasurable in the seeing something that feels like a misperception. He used the example of of, uh, you go to a wax museum, like the attraction of going to a wax museum is that kind of weirdly, is it real or is it not real? Freud then takes that up a little bit, critiques the earlier work and says there's more to it than perception. It's a kind of embedded repressed desires, right? It's, it's repressed in, so our, our, the uncanny feeling that an inanimate object is somehow alive for Freud is partly tied into the wish fulfillment of our infantile juvenile desire for our toys to come to life. Um, and of course that then opens up for Freud into broader sets of repressed sexual desire, repressed identity, repressed connections, etc. And then the last of, of this, move is uh, Todorov, who's uh, again sort of using this more as a literary critic, who then wants to explore the way the uncanny is kind of a middle ground between literature that shows the world as being uh, entirely marvelous and the world in which things are entirely normal. And there's this kind of middle ground that he calls the fantastic, where we as a reader are trying to figure out which is true. Yeah, and this is actually exactly the passage in the book on page 90 uh, where I wrote Scooby-Doo, where you kind of talk about, (laughs) on the one hand, we've got Todorov and the Marvelous, uh, and you describe Marvelous are those tales in which the apparently supernatural entity is in the end proven to be real, and the previously established laws of reality must be reconfigured. And then at the opposite end, you argue are, uh, which is another form of the uncanny, is that the appearance of the supernatural is discounted and laws of reality remain intact, right? So we've got kind of the two, the two ends of the spectrum. And then in the middle is this the fantastic, uh, like you just said, and you say, it is unclear whether the entity appearing before us is explainable or unexplainable. Thus, there exist two possibilities in between the uncanny and the marvelous, the fantastic uncanny, in which our uncertainty is resolved through the existing laws of nature, or the fantastic marvelous, in which the uncertainty is resolved by recognition of the inexplicably marvelous. And I remember you're marking this page because I was like, oh, there are going to be graduate students across the world now writing articles 
with this matrix of that you've created about different. And I think it's incredibly useful. Oh, I, I, well, I hope so. I think it was more me just trying to make sense of it myself, but hopefully well, that helps somebody else. But I mean, this is just, I mean, you've taken a lot of stuff here and basically created just a sort of a very a schematic that can be used as a launching point to ask, like, what is a film doing, re the uncanny, and why would that particular move be taken up? in a particular context. Yeah, and I, and I think it also you know, it comes out of this sort of history of film. If you, if you look back again at the very early films, late 1890s, early 1900s, those were often films entirely of the marvelous. So uh, Melies' Journey to the Moon, it, there's never a doubt that that's happening within the filmic world or the diegetic world of the film. They go to the moon, they meet moon people, they have this little party, like all that happens. There's no question that that's weird or unusual. That's just the nature of the film. On the other hand, in a lot of the films uh, in the period, uh, sort of 1910s and 20s, you, the audience knew, even before the characters in the film, that what looks like a ghost is not the ghost. Um, so it was very much uncanny. And that was a big part of that idea of the American uncanny, that there were lots of films in which we were in on the joke. Or we knew that the ghost was actually mm. just someone wearing a sheet or we knew that this was all a prank, or we knew that, you know, so we know before them, so we get to enjoy their foolishness of right. misunderstanding or misperceiving. And then slowly, and I think I think those literary films of the 20s, uh, and then certainly the mystery thil- thrillers like Cat and the Canary uh, in the late 20s, start to move into this space where the audience isn't quite sure. Like, we sort of know the ghost doesn't exist, but we don't know who it is. So we're not, you know, quite sure. And then, of course, we get to, to Dracula, and, and, and not to belabor the point, but the great thing about Dracula is it inverts everything. So there's a the, there's a really wonderful character, uh, Jonathan Harker, who is the love interest for the main uh, character in Dracula, uh, and he consistently through the movie does not believe in vampires, just kind of keeps dismissing it. So he actually becomes mm. the object of folly because he refuses to yeah. see the, the, the marvelous thing in their midst. Right. So it's almost kind of a dramatic full circle in American culture. Yeah. I mean, the Dracula is just so cool, right? Because again, it's it's not like, I'm not a film buff, but I sort of always kind of knew that this Dracula was kind of like iffy in terms of quality. I mean, you, you said it was kind of like it was like a kind of our version of a B movie, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's funny because it starts off strong and then it just stops moving. Yeah, <laughs> and I often have, I often have to tell, tell students, you know, because we I often show Dracula and Frankenstein kind of together, and they often want to say, "How many how many years was it between Dracula and Frankenstein?" I say, "No, no, no, this is not about the time period." These were literally within about eight months of each other. These films, came right? Out. They're they're the same, right? Exactly contemporaneous. Yes, at the same studio. So, yeah. Do you um? Did you watch the Penny? Have you watched Penny Dreadful? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great series. Do you do you love that Frankenstein's monster? Oh, it's it's so it seems to me so much more resonant with the the novel, in which yes. the monster is much more aware of his existence and being a misfit and. And, uh, yeah, I thought they did a great job with him. That's lovely. The actor's fabulous. So it's, that's a great series for people that haven't watched it. Yeah, he. Um, I've seen him in other stuff, and he usually plays kind of like a buffoony British, like weirdo. Oh, is that right? That's funny. Yeah, it's it's amazing that he's so elegant. I think in that, oh. and maybe, but yeah, and he's a great actor. But I mean, I've never I've seen him in other stuff, and he's always kind of a a doofus. You know, no, it really brings so it was, a kind of quiet dignity to the monster. That yes, I just see. so it's. That's how British people are, though. You know, I think I think of them all as deeply quiet and dignant. I'm sure it's very stereotypical. But yes. Well, my wife is British, so I can I can attest. <gasps> is <that> she <laughs> quiet and dignified? Oh, I need a British spra- spouse to bring a little quiet dignity into yes. my life. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I'm gonna um. So let's. Yeah, I think that was a great summary. I was expecting. I would have. I would have jumped over that a little bit. So let's talk about other other concepts or dominant themes or maybe even just favorite parts of the book that you kind of want to just espouse for a few minutes because there's so much good stuff in here that I'd love to hear sort of what your favorite part are or if you think we've covered it that's fine too. No, I yeah, I think I think the only other thing that I found interesting uh, that we haven't talked about is the the very last the very last few years before Dracula comes out. Mm-hmm. Um and it's certainly true that sound technology so the one thing we haven't added to the conversation uh, changes things, and, and even mm, filmmakers that's true, yeah. in, in the late twenties are recognizing that sound technology, uh, which was again kind of being played with for for a few years, 
was a way not only of kind of adding the emotional uh, uh, punch, but it was a way of expanding the screen. And that became really important so that instead of having to show you um, a, a terrifying figure, I can actually let you hear the creep right. or the howl or the, the movement. And that by expanding the space of the screen to encompass a bigger part of the theater, you really expand this kind of gothic, unusual, uh, you know, kind of fantastic space where we're constantly saying, what was that? Where did that noise come from? Um, and so for some people, you know, they, they've sort of used that to say, well, that's what made Dracula a horror film. Uh, but the only thing I would push back a little bit on is uh, in my research, that was happening as early as 1929. So for a good couple of years yes. before Dracula comes out, people are using sound, not just music, but now like, you know, kind of ambient sound within the film to create a kind of gothic scary atmosphere. Clearly, that's something that Dracula capitalizes on. Um, but it was also just part of that genealogical expansion of this kind of fantastic space of the screen. Yeah, the move to sound is subtle in the book, but it's significant. And I think um, anyone who's I, and again, unfortunately, I I'm like a I'm not a film. St- I don't. So I'm just saying. So anyone who's listening to this because they're interested in media and film technology, there is just so much to this book that will you will love. I just do not have the probably the brain to pick it out for people. <laughs> Thank you. I wish I, I wish I did, but I'm, you, you got to kind of focus on what you know. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Absolutely. No, I agree. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you two questions that actually the book raised for me. So they're, they're not critical. I'm not like critiquing the book. I just, I was kind of interested. You make claims and then I'm like, oh, I wish you'd expand on this. So the first is that you make the argument, I guess. So we're still in the uncanny narratives and foreign others chapter that as, as there's sort of this shift in, in the film technology and we go from just being able to sort of show things very, very screen level to, to narration, right? We're able to kind of give backstory. And so you say that the shift from the monstration to narration meant an emphasis not only on the visual spectacle of the horrific, but also on the crafting of a narrative logic, a logic that would be labeled weird. And we didn't even talk about this thing with weird. We should do that. But my first question was, what do you think it is? Why weird for the shift in narrative? Like why suddenly when, when basically what used to have surface now has depth, does the term weird come into circulation? I think, I think again, the very early films, uh, that, again, that first sort of five, six years of motion pictures, were, just for folks that, that don't spend a lot of time in that world, uh, many of them were largely, the, the, the pleasure in watching them was the technological innovation that allowed a picture to move in front of a, lo- a large audience, right? So that it was actually seeing the spectacle. And so if you look at the very earliest films from the Lumiere brothers, films like Arrival of a Train at a Station or, uh, or fat Workers Leaving a Factory, um, there's nothing really there other than the spectacle of seeing it. Now, very quickly, within a year, mm-hmm. people, many of them stage magicians, were starting to use film technology to create kind of increasingly magical tricks, Um but even then, you know, a lot of the films that were circulating were just, you get to see something. It wasn't necessarily the creation of a deeper story arc. That took a little more time to develop. It also meant that the reels had to be longer. It's hard to tell a narrative in a minute and a half or, or three minutes. So, so as narration comes in, now I'm not just showing you a thing. I have to connect the dots. And connecting the dots mm. requires that kind of narrative. And since I don't have sound or dialogue, and at this point I'm not using a lot of uh, intertitles to, to, to tell people what's happening, I really have to rely on their understandings of the world. So I'm really relying on, the, the in rhetoric we'd say, the topoi, we're, understand, we're relying on the common cultural places where audiences can fill in that narrative. And one of the underlying narrative logics that audiences had at the time, in the early 1900s, was the supernatural, the, the spiritual. Mm, in sure. popular parlance in American culture, that became known as, as you said, uh, by the term weird. So you have lots mm. of examples of weird tales or weird stories. Um, but I think weird is important in two ways. One, of course, it, it has a, a, a longer uh, a tradition or, or meaning uh, related to kind of fate, uh, the broader fates. So the weird sisters, if we think of uh, Shakespeare, uh, 
they're connected to an otherworldly knowledge that's outside of our kind of human empirical perception. Um, but the other way in which weird was commonly used at the time was to denote the foreign, uh, particularly the exotically foreign. And so in my reading, at least, the use of the term weird to describe these narratives that utilize supernatural or, or unnatural narrative logics uh, were that that narrative logic was equated with foreignness, by which we meant not American. And that's part of why the filmmakers and kind of uh, uh, the elites, the tastemakers, the pundits of the time really started pushing against those weird films saying, you know, American audiences shouldn't be following that weird French or European logic. Did you ever read Bonnie Honig's Democracy and the Foreigner? I don't think I have. No, thank you. You might like that. It's got sort of, I mean, it's doing very different work, but it's got that similar kind of vibe. Um, and I think what's, I think what's also really significant here is that at the same time, you're sort of talking about this, like sort of, whereas foreignness used to sort of be the thing that made the films work because superstition and, you know, old world. And plus a lot of them were literally coming from abroad. Right. The American, the American shift accompanies not only the labeling of certain things as weird that are kind of like the traditional demographic sense of foreign, but also this increasing focus on point of view where I, as the viewer, am now adopting the point of view of something on screen. Yes, right. They become more psychological. Like we actually have a point of view as opposed to, again, the very early film were filmed as if you were sitting in a theater and watching a vaudeville act perform. So you are right. kind of, again, your position very much as a viewer watching a piece of entertainment but as films became more mobile and longer and more focused on narrative, suddenly films started crafting a point of view. And that, I think, is why a lot of American filmmakers and, and again, the pundits and elites wanted to really push an American point of view, which was pragmatic, which was skeptical, which was incredulous, etc. Yeah, and just kind of just to sort of link it up just absolutely arbitrarily with like current immigration issues. What's cool about the way that all this comes to a head is that what you realize is it's no more weird to think about you versus the foreigner than it is to think about you viewing from one perspective versus you viewing from another perspective. Sure. And it sort of just reveals all foreignness to already be constructions of habits of seeing. Not that there are weird foreigners and me, but rather that all weirdness is just sort of a, a trick of rhetorical or filmic or whatever effects. No, absolutely. It is the inculcation of a viewing perspective in this instance or a broader kind of cultural worldview that is entirely created by a symbolic system that decides this is normal and that's not. Yeah. And I, th I think the book, I mean, and the book does that without ever sort of like taking on this as a political project. It does it so inductively through the analysis of the film. I just, I really enjoyed it. Um, do you have anything else you want to add? Because we are running up against 50 minutes, and I want to give a chance for you to let listeners know where they Absolutely. can Absolutely. Um, no, I just – I do think, you know, if I could say, I, I, I in writing the book, I wanted to engage lots of different kind of audiences. So I certainly think people uh, who study film and film history and, and certainly who study horror may find something in the book to like or not like or agree or disagree with. Um, but I also think it is in some ways subtly, and, and again, I don't tend to beat people over the head with things, but it, it is a kind of story of the creation of American culture, the way in which we came to think of ourselves yeah. in particular ways and see the world in particular ways. And so hopefully there's a lot there that whoever reads it can sort of find the thread that makes sense to them and kind of pursue it. And hopefully I've done a little bit, at the very least, I hope to make people more interested and lead them back to even better scholarship on these issues uh, and or looking at some of these films, maybe in new ways. Yeah. And the writing just makes it so readable that I, I yeah, I would strongly encourage anybody. I mean, I, I would have a hard time interviewing a not well-written book on this podcast, but I was like, especially thrilled with how good. Oh, and that doesn't even, I wanted to ask you what you think the difference between rhetoric and horror was, or I'm sorry, horror and uh, terror. Um, but we'll, we'll okay, leave that for next, another conversation. Next time. Absolutely. Always, always. Yeah. Next time. So where do, where do readers get the um, book? Certainly they can get it from the university of Texas website. I think most people probably get it from Amazon. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's out and available. It's in paperback. It's on Kindle. Uh, in fact, Amazon just slashed the price, so it's uh, half price. So it's very nice of Amazon to do that. 
Um, so hopefully people, hopefully oh, people nice. will, will find a copy or in, in their library or ask people to, in the library to, to order it. Uh, and yeah, uh, hopefully people will enjoy it. Yeah. And I think that's a good point for listeners. Actually, we've never talked about this, but it's a very cool thing to do if you have a library budget or you have any influence over your local library, whether it's a university or um, uh, just like a public library to try and see if they would, if not buy the actual physical book, perhaps offer the audio version through because it's a good way to get the, the ideas out there. And, you know, academics, we sell our books for different reasons than making money. I mean, very few of us ever <laughs> make anything on this to make it worth, I mean, worth it, right? We do it for the ideas. And so circulation is so important if you have that. It avenue. absolutely is. And, and I would consider. just add as, a, as another part that the, the, the existence of particularly the nonprofit presses, so the university yes. presses, mm-hmm. much of their budget is, is resting on those university adoptions. That's why those hardcover books are often have been expensive. It's not that we expect students or, or folks in the world to pay that price, but but that it gets put into library budgets. So if you are at a university or, or even a community where you can uh, uh, encourage them to buy, please make sure you're encouraging them to buy university press books just so we can keep that venue alive and not all end up... Uh, uh, working only with commercial presses. Yeah, this is so important. All right. Um, so last question, do you want to recommend a book or an author that has to be within the last five years for our next episode? I do. I'm actually thrilled. I, I, to be honest, I, let me say one quick thing. Uh, what's amazing about our field of, of rhetoric is the explosion of books. When I, when I first was starting uh, many, many years ago, very few people wrote books. And so suddenly now, there's so many wonderful books circulating, so it was hard to choose. But but I'm I'm thrilled to recommend a, a former student. You know, you're getting old when your former students not only are out in the world, <laughs> tenured, and, and but but they're writing incredible scholarship. Uh, and so Leslie Honor, uh, who I had as a graduate student at the University of Central Missouri uh, quite a few years ago, is now a faculty member at Baylor, has a wonderful book talk called uh, "To Become an American." Uh, and in some ways covers uh, some of the things that I cover in my little book about film. But she really looks broadly at this creation of the immigration process and the very explicit rhetorical processes uh, that were put in place to kind of craft this idea of how do you become an American. So it is a wonderful book. She's a fabulous person. She's much, much smarter than I am. She writes beautifully. I, I could not recommend her more highly. She's, she's just incredible. All right. Well, if you know Leslie Honor, everyone, tell, tell her she's getting an email from me and she better say yes. And I will just take a second to plug uh, a colleague and friend of both of ours who is going to be on the next episode, and that is Bradford Vivian, Great. Penn State. And he's going to do his new book, A Commonplace Witnessing. So that should be out in a week or two. He's also phenomenal. So, so many great folks. And, and thank you, Lee, for doing this. It's really wonderful to get a chance yeah, to well, talk about a book. I'll tell you, I lo- it was such a great read. I, you really did me the favor. Well, it was great to see you. I hope that the weather uh, stays nice for both of us. Yes. And I will, I guess, see you at the next conference, or maybe I'll come over for lunch, and we will put more in the show notes about where to pick up A Place of Darkness, The Rhetoric of Horror in Early American Films by Kendall Phillips of the Syracuse University. Thank you so much for listening. 